I am full of hope and vision. We just come out of our time in the book of Acts, which is always um, deeply encouraging to me, reaffirming to the work that God has called us to. And it seems odd then to go straight from Acts into First and Second Chronicles. Um, but one of the things I want to, I hope that you, are, you become convinced of tonight is we're in exactly the right place coming out of the book of Acts. All right. Um, Acts and First and Second Chronicles have far more in common uh, than you would think on the surface, especially after this week's reading. I mean, let's be honest, who was just deeply blessed by those first nine chapters? My eyes glazed over a few times. And then you think about like, these are real people. And then some people read, some people read like the Silmarillion. And they're not even real people. And the names are even more confusing. And I don't know why people do that to themselves. It's a little jab at JP. Uh, but I actually want to start. We are going to talk about, I'm going to give a general overview of First and Second Chronicles and just point out some things to watch for over, our, over these next few weeks as we spend time in here. But I want to start in... Second Chronicles chapter 7, which is a very well-known passage of Chronicles, is probably one of the more uh, well-known passages, actually in all of the Old Testament. But Second Chronicles 7 really does express the heart of what the author of Chronicles wants the people of God, at this point in their history, what he wants them to understand. And that's really what I want to talk about tonight. So... 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man to be a ruler in Israel. Father, I pray that you'd anoint our time in the word, that you'd open it to us, that you would draw our hearts out and uh, lead us forward in the work that you've called us to do. Uh, Lord, we believe that all Scripture is profitable, uh, including <laughs> the first nine chapters of First Chronicles. It's profitable to build your people up, to equip them uh, to be who you've called them to be. And Lord, we want to receive with humility the word that you have for us tonight. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason I say that this is a great summary of what the, book, the books of Chronicles are all about has to do with 
when this book was written and, and who it was written for. In many ways, it's, it's a homecoming book. All right? This, this, uh, these two books of Chronicles were written after the books of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, which we studied this past summer. And I have no interest in competing with the story told there. Right? It's not trying to undermine that narrative at all. Not trying to re-spin the story of God's people. In fact, what it wants to do is recap the history of Israel. This is what 1st and 2nd Chronicles are doing. Recap the history of Israel so that Israel would remember who God has called them to be now. Okay? They've been in exile. Uh, they've seen how messy it gets when the hearts of kings turn toward idols. They've lived through the period of the divided kingdom. And now they've been allowed by the grace of God to go back into the land. And they've been there a little while. And now a, a new story needs to be told. We know the downfall of David. We know the downfall of Solomon. We know the long and sad history of the divided kingdom. And so we kind of know what not to do, <laughs> but what do we do? How do we establish, how do we live our lives? And so this is a book for the people of Israel to use as a guide to reestablishing the way of life that God has always desired among his people. So it's a retelling of the history, not just of God's people, but of the human race, right? It begins with Adam at the very beginning of the book. Of the whole human race and what God is desiring from the human race. All right, so First and Second Chronicles is a book of, of universal importance, even more so than Samuel and Kings. It begins with Adam. Second Chronicles ends with Cyrus, king of Persia, neither of whom are Jews. Adam, Cyrus. So it's it's bracketed by people who aren't necessarily who aren't Jews. Now, it tells the history of God's people, but its, it's concern is, is of universal scope. As I said, it's written later than Samuel and Kings. It's written after the return, the Babylonian exile. It assumes, these books assume knowledge of the stories of Samuel and Kings. All right? Again, they're not trying to supplant it or replace it or scrub history clean of its blemishes. <laughs> None of that's happening in First and Second Chronicles. It has its own agenda, and that's, what, that's the agenda that I want to kind of get in our head as we approach these books. Um, it skips the early story. So this is, if you just read straight through the Bible, it can be a bit confusing. You go First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Um, that's how it's written in the canon that you and I have in our Bibles. It's not arranged in that way in the Hebrew Bible. In fact, 1st and 2nd Chronicles is the very last book of the Hebrew Bible in the way that, that the Hebrew Old Testament is arranged. And uh, I think that's a good way to think about it. It's sort of the last word. All right, this is the final statement. This is who God wants us to be. After all this stuff, the age of the prophets, the downfall, the, the exile, those 70 years. Now, how do we move forward as a nation? And First and Second Chronicles is written to answer that question. This is why um, it skips over a lot of what we would think is very important detail. The story of Saul, the calling of Samuel, the anointing of the first king. It doesn't mention any of that. Right? 
Why? Because it's not trying to compete with those stories. It assumes that you already know those stories. It's pointing out and, and adding to the story that we already have. And so it, that it behooves us then to focus on what First and Second Chronicles adds. Not how it might differ in little ways and how it might seemingly contradict Samuel and Kings. But what is it bringing to the table to add to the story that's already been told? Okay? And it's our modern minds that want to pick apart, well, it says this number in Samuel and Kings and this number in, in Chronicles. Clearly, the Bible contradicts itself. By no means. Right? That's, not how, that's not how it would have been viewed. And believe me, they would have scoured all the numbers in both texts and still view it as part of the same story and legitimate history for the people of God. I'm talking about Jew, you know, the rabbis and the Jews. They honored it as part of their Bible with all of its contradictions. And I'm sure they know them, the differences, better than we ever would. So what these books bring to the table that Samuel and Kings don't, I would say there's far more detail about the temple. Right? That's really the, the, the big thrust of... I mean, it doesn't say much about Solomon and David other than that that doesn't have to do with the building of the temple. right, Or the establishment of the worship, the system of worship around the temple. Detail on the temple personnel, the organization of the priests, more structural details. That's why it reads a little bit more dry. It's because it's more structural. It's more institutional, less personal, like Samuel and Kings. It's like Samuel is, the books of Samuel are, are, a, are a family saga, you know, told in, in brilliant characterization, right? That's largely absent from First uh, and Second Chronicles. It also largely omits the stories of the northern kingdom, which is a big part of the books of First and Second Kings. The northern kingdoms, the ten tribes that broke away, that became what was called Israel through the books of First and Second Kings, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah in those books, So it largely omits those stories, but it emphasizes other details about some of the southern kings um, in Judah, the kings of Judah. So it expands those stories. It adds details about the temple, about temple personnel, about structural organization of the priesthood. And that's what it brings to the table. So you can see that this is a book that doesn't want to retell the story. It wants to equip the people of God with aspects of the story that they need to build a nation, to, to build a city, to run a country in God's, in, in God's name. It's much more constitutional or constructive, you could say, than Samuel and Kings. It'd be hard to build a nation using Samuel and Kings. You'd be much better off using the books of First and Second Chronicles, in building a nation, particularly establishing a priesthood, right? There's lots of details about the worship and who does what and what you carry and how you sing and what instruments to use and all that kind of stuff. Much more of a manual for building a church than Samuel and Kings. This is one book, and we say this all the time, of, of the Old Testament story, but these books especially, it's helpful to 
zoom out in order to see what the author is doing. It's often called the chronicler. (laughs) The chronicler is doing. Because that's kind of what he is doing himself. He's zooming out. All right, yes, we know there's some nitty-gritty details that went on. There's some crazy stuff that happened in the courts of David and Solomon, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. But let's zoom out and let's see what was God after in the midst of all of that. Okay? Yeah, we know. There's a lot of bad stuff. It's well documented. But what was God after? And that's what the chronicler is doing. What, how do we move forward? Okay? We know what our past is, but how do we move forward? And it assumes, and this is another great thing about First and Second Chronicles, it assumes that God is still up to what he's always been up to, even after the exile. Right? So it's, it's a hopeful book. Hey, we are still God's people. We are still God's people. And we've been away for 70 years. We're back home now. But we have a lot of questions to answer. We're pretty shaken up coming out of exile. Right? A big part of our identity had to do with the land. We haven't been in the land for 70 years. So what actually makes us the people of God? These are the questions that the chronicler is raising, but also giving us some pretty helpful answers to. So a broad outline. This is a broad outline. It's just four points. <laughs> First Chronicles 1 through 9, the genealogies which that's really what gives Chronicles a bad rap. But again, if you see, even in the genealogies, if you kind of zoom out and look at what's going on, if you get past the the boredom, if you see what's going on, I'll talk about it a little bit more in, in depth, but if you see what's going on, it's actually a masterful tapestry. And it can actually be really inspiring to see what he's doing there. So 1 through 9, genealogies. 10 through 29, that's, that's the whole of, of 1 Chronicles, is David's reign. Second Chronicles 1 through 9, Solomon's reign. Second Chronicles 10 through 36, the divided kingdom. And that's basically it. In, in the midst of all of that, there are long sections, just like in, in a few other places in the Old Testament, there are long sections of details. Okay, Because this is sort of a how to build a nation, how to reconstruct. Right, This is sort of reconstruction document for the people of God. So some things to be watching for more thematically okay, as we go through. First thing is, is a focus on people and temple as the true identity of Israel. Less than kind of geopolitical status. I think the, the people of Israel have been humbled somewhat. I mean, they always had enemies. But now that they got totally taken out of their land and subjected to 70 years of exile in Babylon... They don't really have anything left to grasp in terms of being a, being a superpower, <laughs> being a national threat, right? being a, an imperialistic 
nation. They don't have any, really any, any momentum left there. So David went around, you know, in the books of Samuel, he fought wars, he established borders, he defeated enemies, he won territories. That's not so much what's going on here, other than when he captures Jerusalem. That, that story is told in much more detail. But really what that's focused toward is showing how David's heart was to establish a capital to assemble all Israel, and in the center of that capital to appoint worshipers at the very center of the, the nation. This book is often attributed, if not in authorship, to Ezra, at least in the same time frame. So if you remember, and I think later in the year we're going to be talking about Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra is the story of the rebuilding of the temple after they come back. And um, Nehemiah is the story of the, really the building of the wall, but symbolically the reestablishment of the city. So we have temple. The other thing Ezra is, uh, deals with is um, he's a preacher of the word. He brings Torah back into the center, and there's, there's this group repentance uh, that happens when he reads Torah out loud and teaches from it. Um, so temple, Torah, and the city, these are all things that are being reestablished. And this is, what, uh, this is kind of the, the world into which uh, the chronicler speaks. Um, this, so that's the first thing. The focus on the people and temple uh, as the true identity of Israel. That's why there's so many people named in this book. Just how many names are in this book? How many f- individuals are accounted for? Right? It's the people. Number two, the author highlights um, humility and covenant faithfulness. Um, and really wants to draw out the best parts of Israel. Okay? And this is not, again, this is not a means of covering over the bad parts. But to emphasize what God's looking for. Okay? It's, why, it's why David doesn't seem quite so bad after reading Chronicles. When you read Samuel, you're like, man, that guy was broken. You read Chronicles, you're like, hey, he's a decent guy. (laughs) So one example also is is like the way that it treats the northern kingdom. There's a whole section of 1 and 2 Kings that deals with the northern kingdom. That's where Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. And all of the Elijah stuff is directed at Ahab and all the northern stuff. Everything, that's all absent from this book. But that's not a scrubbing of history. And it's also not an exclusion of those ten tribes, right? Well, we're coming back, and we're Judah, and we're going to build this, and we don't care about you ten tribes. How many times, just in the opening chapters that we read this week, did you hear the phrase, all Israel? David assembled all Israel. All Israel. So there's this inclusiveness that we don't, yes, that thing happened with the northern kingdom. But we're appealing to, as we reestablish the people of God, we're appealing to all Israel. We want to come back as one people. Okay? So that's why it focuses on the legitimate Davidic line of kings. Not to say, all right, we don't care what you guys did. But, yeah, we know the story. We know what happened with the northern kingdom. And it was always idolatrous. But even now there's hope for all Israel to be assembled. Just like David was the assembler of all Israel. 
David's reign, uh, another example of this, where it highlights humility and covenant faithfulness. Um, David's reign is less of the warrior king, although there is, there's st- still some of that. You know, I'm not speaking in absolute terms, but it's less warrior king. You know, he's not the, the kid who defeated Goliath. He's not, you know, David has slain his thousands, or Saul has slain his thousands, and David is tens thousand. He's less of that, and he's more of a great assembler and uniter and even organizer of people. Okay? So just, again, think about what the chronicler wants to accomplish. The king, our greatest king. Look, look how great of an assembler and a uniter of the people he was. Right? If you want to... So, for example, I, I think we can relate to this. There would be two ways to get people more excited to, or to... to to organize people around being Americans, right? You could point to George Washington and say, you know, look at what, look at what a chauvinistic, uh, patriarchal pig that guy was. We need to do something drastically different. Look at who our founder was, you know. He even made, he had slaves. And you point out all the bad stuff. And that you would achieve one result by doing that. You achieve another result by saying, yeah, I mean, he... He may have been flawed like everybody else. But here were the really good things. Here's what he was really good at. Here's what he would put his life on the line for. Now, can we hear that and move forward with that? That's kind of what it does, what Chronicles does for David. I don't see any uh, interest that the Chronicler has to deny anything that David did. We say, yes, we know that. But what did he do? What pleased God? Number three, things to look for. Worship as a primary, maybe the primary concern of the people of God. Worship. And I don't think that the the chronicler was ignorant to the fact that Pretty much all of Israel's previous problems can ultimately be traced to a drift away from true, pure, humble, obedient worship of Yahweh. Basically, every problem comes back to that. So it makes sense. Moving forward, what do we really want to be 100% sure and straight down the line on? Well, it's got to be worship. That's where everything starts. It's where every problem starts. It's also where every good thing starts, where every blessing that God wants to pour into us and out to the nation, that's where it happens. And so worship as the primary concern of the people of God. I would even say that the chronicler wants to show us that worship's just not the primary concern of the people of God, but worship is actually the primary reason that man exists. Not the primary reason that Israel exists, but the primary reason that man exists. Where does he start his story? With Adam. And so along with that, we want to look for not just a technical, again, we need to to zoom out here. 
Yes, it's pretty technical, some of the descriptions of the worship, some of the organization and all the Levites and, and what their jobs were and all of that. But what is the heart of the worship that the chronicler is, des- is describing? What is the heart of that worship? What pleased God about this kind of worship? All right, this, the fourth thing to, to watch for is a king's role as guardian and resourcer of worship. Okay, it just highlights so much how much David poured into the project of establishing priestly worship. Of all the things that a king could be concerned with, he was so concerned. His, all of his resources, all of his energy, all of his influence was poured into all of his diplomatic relations with Hiram, the king of Tyre. Everything, all the material resources, all of it was directed first and foremost to worship. Good kings, according to the chronicler, maintain the nation's infrastructure to support worship. That's what a good king does. And the way he describes it is, good kings seek God. A good king is a king who sought the Lord. Well, how do you seek God? You worship. That's how you seek the face of God, as in the verse that we just read. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. So good kings are ones who seek God and call all Israel to seek God. A bad king is one who does not seek God. It's pretty simple. The fifth thing, and this, uh, there's only, there's six. Is look for this. And this is really fascinating. I, I'm reading a book, uh, a commentary on Chronicles by Peter Lightheart. And he's, he's pretty good at pulling out some of these, uh, some of these a little more subtle themes. Uh, but I think there's a lot to this. Is that there's a, he's retelling the history of Israel's monarchy but doing it in a way that's shaped like Israel's ancient history, captivity, uh, exodus, conquest of the land. You know, the old story of, of Israel. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. So listen to this. The story, the narrative really begins in chapter 10, right? There's nine chapters of genealogy. The story begins in chapter 10. What's the first part of the story? Saul's death. <laughs> and the Philistines triumph over they basically are holding Israel captive. So Israel begins the story in captivity, not to the Egyptians, but to the Egyptians' heirs in Scripture, the Philistines. Right? David comes as a Moses, delivers them from the Philistines, and begins to establish worship, sets up the tent. Sounds an awful lot like Moses. Okay? Then comes Solomon, who is very much like a Joshua figure, right? He's the next in line. He actually completes the work that's in David's heart to do, just like Moses and Joshua. So there's a, I mean, it's, it's, it's blatantly obvious at that level that there's a very much Moses and Joshua dynamic to David and Solomon. 
Moses the pioneer, David the, David the pioneer, uh, Joshua the finisher of the work, Solomon the completer of the temple. But then after that, it, it keeps going. What happens after Joshua's conquest and establishment of the monarchy? It's the period of the judges, which is continual and downward spiral due to idolatry, which is the story of the divided kingdom. And they find themselves eventually in um, darkness at the end of the book of Judges. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes, very much like the state close to the, to the point of captivity of the people of God. Then they go into captivity. They finally come back. And Second Chronicles ends with the return, the proclamation of Cyrus. They can now come back. And so First and Second Chronicles ends on the cusp of a new monarchy, a new golden age, right? And it's supposed to stir up. Yes, look, our, the history of our monarchy has followed the pattern of history of us from ages before, right? We were in captivity. We were brought out. God gave us a king. God gave us a leader, a deliverer, Moses, and he passed on to Joshua. But then after that, through the generations, failure crept in and idolatry crept in and there was a downward cycle into bondage and slavery. But now here we are, just like at the beginning of Samuel, it was dark, the word of the Lord was rare, but the Lord found someone with whom he could work. It's positioning Israel to be now like a new Hannah, a new Samuel, to bring the light of the Lord back into the nation of Israel. And we are ready now. This is what happens when the people of God reach their lowest. Yahweh steps down. He comes and he brings light. He brings truth. He brings restoration and deliverance. And so in the, in the proclamation of Cyrus, we get this anticipation and great hope. And First and Second Chronicles wants to fill out for us, here's what we can look forward to. Remember David? Remember Solomon? Remember the glory of the temple? In looking back, they want to look forward at what's possible in the nation of Israel. I think that's pretty cool that the chronicler is telling a surface story of the history of the monarchy, but he's also retelling beneath the surface kind of the meta-history of Israel, the way it has always gone in Israel's history, that pattern. Finally, what to watch for? is an awareness of Israel's role among the nations. There's an increasing awareness, and I think this is capped off by, again, Cyrus at the end of Second Chronicles, an increasing awareness that Israel doesn't exist in and of itself and for itself. Israel exists for the nations. Israel exists as a pattern and as an invitation to all the nations of the earth. That's why I think it begins with Adam, the universal and the universal scope, and it ends with Cyrus. This is about much more than the people of God. And so again, on the cusp of reestablishing the nation of Israel, rebuilding the temple, reestablishing worship, we want to look forward to a time where we aren't just this isolated, victimized group of people. We are to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. Remember that, Israel? Remember that part of your calling? The chronicler would say to to the people of Israel. All right, so real quick, 
I want to point out some things about the genealogy. I'm, I'm going to do this fast. Okay, basically this. And I just want to show how the genealogy reinforces what the chronicler is trying to do in general. All right. Um, Old Testament narratives are often, and stick with me here. Put on your, put on your listening ears. Old Testament narratives often are structured in what's called a chiastic structure. All right, and what a chiastic structure is, is it um, like if you have six parts of a story. Let's call it five parts of a story. One would be A, B, C, and then B, A. All right? And A, the A's and A's would correspond to each other. The B's and the B's would correspond to each other. And it would kind of highlight the climax of the story would be in the C section, right? Because that kind of, it builds towards that and then outward from that. Does that kind of make sense, roughly? All right. That's how this genealogy section is structured, Okay? So the A section, it actually goes A, B, C, D, C, B, A. The A section is all the peoples of the world, chapters 1 and 2, or just basically all of chapter 1. The B section is Judah. The C section is the tribes, that, the Transjordan tribes. They were across the Jordan River. They're, they stayed on the other side. That would be Reuben, um, Manasseh. What's the other one? Yeah, yeah. In the D section, which is the one that would be emphasized, the one that sort of is the heart of, of the genealogy, who is it? It's the Levites. And actually at the very middle, it's the singers. All right, And then outward from there is the northern tribes. Then in the B section is Benjamin, which would correspond to Judah, so kind of the two royal tribes. And then A again is um, in chapter 9, it's the returning exiles. All right, so the people right here. So you have everyone from Adam to the very recent people that are probably still alive at the time this is written. Right? The first people and the most recent people on the bookends of that genealogy. And then all the way, you've got the, tri- the, the two royal tribes, the other tribes, and then Levi in the middle. And the book really does emphasize... The Levites, the priesthood. Right? So even in his genealogy, he's saying something about the composition of Israel, the structure of Israel. Listen, guys, Levi really is a special tribe among us. The genealogy also highlights a few notable individuals along the way who are either good or bad examples. Right? And it, would, it makes sense. That's what the chronicler wants to do. Hey, this was a really good example. Let's hang on to that one. Hey, remember this one? Don't forget, because that's a really bad example. So, for example, this, it's only the chronicler that tells us about Jabez, right? Remember Jabez? He kind of has a little digression on Jabez. Spawned a whole series of books and Bible studies, I think. Remember that? Prayer of Jabez? Remember that stuff? Um, as, a, as a good example, hey, Jabez was, was someone who was faithful. He prayed, and he received the blessing of God, and God said, hey, that's what I'm looking for, right? So just little, little tidbits. A negative example, he, he calls out Achan. He's <laughs> like, hey, remember this guy Achan? He was bad. Right? And there's a few others like that. And so what this genealogy section is, is I would call it a masterful mosaic. It's like one of those pictures that has all sorts of individual pictures in it, but it's all arranged in a way that when you zoom out, it creates a, an, another picture. That's what he's done with these lists. And the way that they're struck, uh, they're, they're constructed 
You know what I'm talking about? Those, those pictures? What are those called? No, it's not the ones where you go cross-eyed and then you see the 3D. What happened to those, by the way? The, the mosaics made of... Yeah, yeah, the mosaic. No, it's not the, it's not the 3D go blind staring at the back of the magazine one. Yeah, magic. <laughs> what happened to those? That was weird. So what I want to say about the genealogy, and, and you can take this home with you, is that somehow, even in the genealogies, the main concern of the author are discernible. You can, you can sense what he's after. He is, and I actually think that his original audience ate this stuff up. They, they loved reading this stuff. All right, so we got to get outside of our own tastes and say, man, this, was, this would have been deeply encouraging to someone coming back into the land. This is who we are. Right? We are a people. We're still a people. We st- our, our, our lineage is intact. I can trace mine all the way back to Adam. Right? That would be an incredibly cur- encouraging thing for a, a refounding project. Can you, see, can you see that? Can you sense that? I mean, just think if, like, heaven forbid, our kids had to go into exile somewhere. And somebody had done their homework and learned all of our names. And the kids of our kids' kids could read that and go, whoa, they were really faithful. They, they, they really loved God. They, they, and they could read that and they, they some, somehow come out of exile and they, they can read about all of our lives and a few of us who did the wrong thing, and a few of us who did the right thing, <laughs> they could have that document. That would just be an amazing thing to have. Okay, so to, to wrap up, if we can see it, and I hope I've given you some ways to be able to see it, to help you see it tonight, if we can see it, these books give the church of Jesus an amazing vision for how to be the people of God. For how to build the church. I want to read a few uh, foundational scriptures that I think will make even more sense after we, after we uh, study First and Second Chronicles. First is in Exodus 19, verse 6. Now then, this is during the, the Sinai covenant, right? Kind of the, the, one of the pinnacle moments of the people of God. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does the chronicler want Israel to realize about itself? It's a kingdom, yes, but it's a kingdom of priests. Hence the heavy emphasis on Levi. And the excruciating detail of the work of the priesthood, the duties of the priests, the ministry of the temple. Guys, this is the most important work you can do. In fact, this is, this is really the entirety of the work. This sums up all the work that I want you to do. You are a kingdom of priests. If you don't do this for the sake of the world, who's going to do it? I have a people. And their work is to seek my face and declare who I am among the nations. That's what Israel's calling was. That's what our calling is. 
We are still a kingdom of priests. To underscore that, 1 Peter, he quotes this. And he's talking to New Testament Christians. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 5. You also, church, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're still a temple. We still offer sacrifices. Now they look different. The outward trappings are much different. But the very same heart that God was looking for in his people is the heart he is looking for among us. Verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You guys were in exile. He's called you out of darkness. And now in establishing his church, we're looking back and saying, well, this is the very same thing God's always been trying to establish among his people. But now we have Jesus. We have the pattern. We don't, it's not just the pattern. We have the reality of the temple, the presence of God, and the sacrifices. Uh, Revelation 1. Again, I want you to, to realize that First and Second Chronicles is a book written to show the people of God how to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's their calling. That was, that's still our calling. Revelation 1.6. He has made us to be a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. And then chapter 5, verse 10. Starting verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Listen, Jesus has died, and he has purchased by his blood a people. He's called people to himself from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And guess what he's doing with them? The same thing that he's always been doing with his people. Making them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. The blood of Jesus. I mean, this is what God wants to spend his most valuable resources on. Right? He spent his most valuable resources to gather from every tribe and tongue and people to make a nation for himself who would be a kingdom of priests. That's who you are. That's who we are. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus to be what the book of First and Second Chronicles is describing. Okay? So I want us to get that vision. I want us to, to approach these books With, with the lens of, of Jesus, the lens of, of being his purchased people, and to see what God wanted his people to do and to be. Like I said, the outward trappings of the priesthood have changed drastically. But God is no less concerned with 
blessing the world through his people. And this happens as, as we seek him, as Chronicle says, we seek him together, build our lives around worshiping him. And so there's two questions I want us to, to take with us for the next few weeks. How do these books call me and our church into a deeper and richer life of worship? What are they calling us to? You may need to have a, a, a breakthrough in worship, either an understanding of what worship is or just a commitment to it, a priority of it. Second question is, what effect can that have on our lives and on the lives of those around us? What effect can that have on our lives? Or will it have? What effect will it have on our lives and the lives of those around us? So as we see and we go deeper into what it means to be a people of worship, what does that look like in our lives? And how is it going to affect the lives of the people around us. So what the Chronicler wants to say is the very same thing that we should say about the book of Chronicles. And it's this. The Chronicler says to the people who are coming back into the land, hey, things might look a little different, but God's still the same and is after the same things. That's what the Chronicler says to the returning exiles. And so we need to say that to ourselves. We can also say of this book, hey, things might look a little different now, but God's still the same, and he's after the same things. And I think we need to to humble ourselves before this book and allow it to speak to us, allow God to speak to us and minister his heart, his desires to us. You read that part again in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. The Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place. Hey, what you've made here, this is what I want. Now we know that God wasn't talking about the physical temple. But what they had done, the heart that they brought, the priority that they placed on seeking the face of God, God says, that's it. That's what I want. I have chosen this place, the place where my people have devoted all their resources, the finest of their resources, to seeking my face. That's where I'm going to come and meet with them. Hey, if I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name, you know, if they'll humble themselves, and just imagine, the chronicler saying this to the returning exiles. Hey, guys. You can always humble yourself. You can always pray. And we need to hear this. They humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I'm going to hear from heaven. My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. This, that's what worship is about. I mean, God determined where and how his people were to worship him. And here we have a very clear picture. This is where. And this is how. I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. 
Do we want to seek God? We need to go find him here. We need to go find him here. Now, we know that the temple was Jesus. And when we devote all of our resources and revolve our lives around seeking Jesus, getting to know him, God says, hey, you are Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. It's the same thing. In this place, I'm going to hear you. When you acknowledge that Jesus is the way, and you seek him with all of your heart, that's where I'm going to come and be with you. That's real worship. Amen? So I want to, I want to kind of prime us to, to really drink deep of the books of First and Second Chronicles. As people who are coming out of darkness and into light, as people who are tasked with the establishment of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, their calling is our calling. And we have the responsibility we are kings and queens of Narnia, right? This is our book. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you'd open our eyes, that, we, that you'd take us deeper into worship. Lord, in the, in the kind of um, comprehensive worship that the New Testament, uh, the, the living sacrifice type of worship, God. Lord, I pray that we'd see our lives in the terms of First and Second Chronicles, Lord, as priests who minister in your household day and night, who are devoted to the work, who allocate resource toward the work of seeking your face, God. Lord, I pray that they would grip us, that we would repent, Lord, in the ways that we need to, of, of not really seeing the fervor with which you call us to seek your face. Lord, that you would humble us, so that we could meet with you, God, that we could seek your face together. And I thank you, Lord, that you're, you're doing that already, and you're going to continue to do that among us as we, uh, as we seek to be your people and build your church here in Lexington. Uh, be with us, send your Holy Spirit, reveal your word to us, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.